and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week, I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi guys, welcome back to episode number 19 of the podcast and today I'm joined by Dr. Laura Bryden. I'm pretty sure that a lot of you know who Laura Bryden is if you're in the hormonal and women's health world. But for those of you who don't know, Dr. Bryden is a naturopathic doctor and the period revolutionary. She's leading the change to better periods, informed by a strong science background and more than 20 years experience with her patients. Laura is a passionate communicator about women's health and the alternatives to hormonal birth control. Her book, Period Repair Manual, which is a must-have in my opinion, is a manifesto of natural treatments for better hormones and better periods. And it also provides practical solutions using nutrition, lifestyle, supplements and natural hormones. Now, in its second edition, the book has been an underground sensation and has worked to quietly change the lives of tens of thousands of women, myself included. Laura divides her time between Christchurch, New Zealand and Sydney, Australia, where she has consulting rooms. She's helped thousands of women find relief for their period problems such as PCOS, PMS, endometriosis and perimenopause. In this episode, we discuss the downsides of hormonal birth control, why ovulation is actually the star of the show when it comes to our menstrual cycles and we need to pay more attention to it. Alternatives to hormonal birth control for those looking for different options. Common obstacles to ovulation. Carbohydrate intake for hormonal health. Why a vegan diet may not be the best for your hormones. And her tips for managing hirsutism. I really think you're going to enjoy this interview. Laura was actually on the list of my dream guests to have on the podcast so I was thrilled when she agreed to come on and talk with us. I could seriously listen to her all day and ask her questions for three more hours but I know that she's extremely busy and I appreciate the time that she shared with us. So here's the interview with Laura. Hi Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today and for those who don't know who you are, I'm pretty sure that everyone in my audience knows who you are but Could you just give a general introduction of who you are and what you do? Yep, I'm a naturopathic doctor with consulting rooms in Sydney, Australia, and my book is Period Repair Manual. And it's kind of everything you need to know to have better periods. Definitely is. It's like the period (laughs) and hormone Bible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm just always referring back to it and yeah, recommend it to everyone. It's amazing. And how, how did you get into women's health? Well, I've been. A naturopathic doctor for a long time, more than 20 years. And it was just over the years, the main patients who were coming to see me were women. They were all looking for some kind of solution. They were all saying things to me like, you know, I'd like to come off the pill, but I need it for my skin or I need it for my period pain. And 
then of course we, we discovered that a lot of the natural treatments work very well for those conditions. And I just started focusing more and more on that. And then of course, it finally compiled all of that into my book. Mm-hmm. And why do you think, do you think hormone imbalances are on the increase or do you just think they're becoming more recognized? I think period problems are more common than they used to be. Yes. I think it's a combination of reasons. I think part of it, the problem is the three generations of using the pill to try to suppress symptoms, but actually in many cases making it worse. There's other factors that are probably affecting period problems. A big one is PCOS is growing in frequency. So we can touch on that today. Yeah, definitely. And why is the pill not the answer to hormone problems? Because it shuts down the hormonal system. So you basically have no hormones when you're on the pill. You have what are contraceptive drugs. I no longer use the word hormone to refer to those medications because they're hormone-like. Yes, they have similar effects to our hormones, but in some cases their effects are almost opposite, particularly in the case of progesterone, real progesterone that our body makes has very, very different effects on the brain compared to all the progestin drugs. And that's why, for example, we've seen that the pill and actually all types of hormonal birth control are linked with anxiety and depression, which is yeah, very concerning. Yeah, there's some scary research coming about coming out yeah. Um, yeah. these years, yeah, isn't there? And is yeah. is the pill the, the worst out of a bad bunch? So when taking into account the IUD or the coil or the injection or the old bad as well, each other? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. So the just to, just to state from the outset, the copper IUD or the copper coil is a completely different thing because it's not hormonal, it doesn't affect hormones. It arguably has a few downsides of its own, but it doesn't shut down ovulation or shut down hormones the way all the other types do. No, I wouldn't necessarily say the pill is the worst. I think probably the worst is the Nivering and the Depo-Provera injection. I don't know how many people in the UK use yeah. the Depo, but down here it's actually still pretty common. And yeah, it's, same. It's, it's the worst in terms of side effects, in terms of bone loss, in terms of what the research calls unstoppable weight gain on the injection. So most other types of birth control, if they hormonal birth control, if they cause weight gain, it's sort of like a little bit of weight gain, you know, sort of 10 or five or 10% that just kind of stabilizes and that's your new normal. Yeah. With the Depo-Provera injection, the weight gain just seems to keep going up and up with presumably no upper limit as long as you stay on it. Why do you so think that is? Oh, I think it's the way it alters insulin sensitivity right. quite profoundly, the way it yeah. robs the body of estrogen, which is actually estrogen is really quite important for metabolism and a healthy insulin balance. In, uh, estrogen is a natural appetite suppressant. So to have no estrogen, to be basically pushed into a menopausal state, it, well, it's essentially, yeah, being on depo is a lot more like just being menopausal. And of course, you know, we know menopausal women gain weight, but actually the women, the girls on depo gain more, more than even women do with menopause. So it's, yeah, I've seen that too. And yeah, it's, it's not a good thing. <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. That's not a good, uh, not a good symptom, is it? No. And I've heard the pill being linked to um, like the analogy of being in menopause as well. And some people say yeah. it's more like being in pregnancy. Is it because 
your natural hormones are in a menopausal state, but the synthetic hormones that you get in are mimicking pregnancy? Well, that was always the idea yeah. that it mimics pregnancy. That was the idea from the beginning. But the problem is the contraceptive drugs of the pill are not pregnancy hormones. So the big one is progesterone. We get a huge amount of progesterone during pregnancy. Yeah. And that shuts down ovulation. Obviously we're in a, but we're progesterone. This is actually one of my main points in my book and on my blog. The hormone progesterone has all these interesting, unique benefits in terms of the way it modulates immune system, reduces inflammation, enhances thyroid function, is good for the brain, all these things, good for metabolism, good for metabolic rate, all these things that progestin drugs do the opposite. So it's kind of like, I don't know in what way that's like pregnancy. You know, it's only like pregnancy and that ovulation is shut down, but you don't have all the good hormones that you would get during pregnancy. So it's a, it's a bad analogy. I think, yeah, it was always there from the beginning, but you're right in saying actually being on the pill is more like being in menopause, chemically induced menopause, and then taking these contraceptive drugs as a type of hormone replacement that is not even as good as the hormone replacement they give to women in menopause these days. Yeah. And you, I've heard you say many different times that ovulation is the star of the show when it comes to our menstrual cycle. Is that the yeah. main reason why the pill isn't a good thing? It's because it steals the ovulation, it robs us of that yeah. natural progesterone or the other, yeah. the other negative effects of the pill that you're not a fan of. Yeah, it robs yeah. us of ovulation. Yeah. So and, and there's an endocrinologist named Professor Geraldine Pryor. She helped me with my book, Period Repair Manual. I quote her a few times. She has this great quote that I've been putting out there, which is that women benefit from 35 to 40 years of regular ovulation to prevent osteoporosis, heart disease, dementia, and breast cancer. And the reason she says that is because of our monthly dose of progesterone, both estrogen and progesterone actually, but our monthly dose of progesterone protects against all of those things. So the way I see it, my analogy is like each and every ovulation is like a deposit into the bank account of long-term health. And you don't get the same deposit from the pill because as we said, they're not the, they're not the, same, the same hormones, they're not hormones. But you would arguably, just for example, you know, get the same kind of deposit or a much bigger healthy deposit from pregnancy because you make lots of progesterone, like heaps of it actually, mm -hmm. like so much progesterone during pregnancy, which is one of the reasons why pregnancy has been shown to potentially be protective against some of those conditions as well. Mm -hmm. And I also love the quote, the, I think it's um, Dr. Pryor's quote in your book, is it ovulation is both an indicator and predictor of yeah. health? Yeah, love oh, that one. Yeah. Love yeah, that. Good, it, yeah, indicator and creator of health. Creator of health. Is that similar idea, yes. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's an indicator. Ovulation, regular ovulation is an indicator because it's what I call in my book our monthly report card. It's telling the story that everything is good with health, the body's happy, it's going to do this important thing that it has to do, namely ovulation. And ovulation is a creator of health because exactly what I just said, it's how we make hormones, how we make estrogen and progesterone, and they're so important. Mm -hmm. And for someone who's on the pill, what are some symptoms that they may be experiencing that's just showing that it's not working for them? So 
may hear of some of the common side effects from your doctor, like you may gain a little bit of weight, um, you may have a slight increased risk of blood clots if it runs in your family, but we're not often told about some of the like gastrointestinal or mental health symptoms. So what are some of the other common things that you um, come across? Yeah, well, the big one is mood. Yeah. As you just said, there's a big study now. Well, at the end of 2016, out of Denmark, of 1.1 million women over 13 years discovered an increased risk of anxiety and depression for women on any type of hormonal birth control. And they, for a few reasons, the authors said that their results were probably an underestimate of the problem. Mm. The problem's probably quite a bit bigger than what they were able to measure. And also, along with mood, goes a potentially drop in energy. That's something I hear a lot from my patients is that they're, when they stop hormonal birth control, their energy goes up. And it's really, it's to do with lots of things, but I suspect it's to do with mood, it's to do with adrenal hormones because the pill suppresses adrenal hormones. The other side effect that's pretty common, depending on which drug you're on, which contraceptive drug, which progestin, is hair loss. Because some of the progestins, particularly a drug called levonorgestrel, is actually more like testosterone than it is like progesterone. So it causes testosterone type of hair loss, which is very distressing for women and happens over years and is possibly not easy to reverse or possibly not possible to reverse, which is a heavy toll to take. It's a big price to pay, I think, for having been on that drug. And yeah, as you say, it affects gut, it affects digestion, it affects the gut microbiome. Um, yeah, it affects pretty libido, much everything. Affects, affects, pretty much every um, system. Causes, <laughs> causes vaginal dryness and low libido, kind of like menopause does, yeah. which is not mm-hmm. that surprising. And yeah. the ironic thing is that that's what people go on the pill for, so they can have um, sex, they can clear yeah. their skin, they can have nice hair, they can stop the, the period problems, but then they may be experiencing new ones when they're on the pill or those symptoms just come straight back as soon as they discontinue. Well, the skin's a good example. So some of the, well, some progestin drugs cause acne. So that's a separate issue. So that would be levonorgestrel again. That particular one is quite bad for skin. Some of them improve skin because they reduce testosterone quite dramatically in the body. But just as you said, the problem is what happens when you try to stop the drug, usually that will, can result in a post-pill acne that's worse than what you ever saw before. I had patients who were like, just couldn't, had never imagined their skin could be as mm-hmm. bad as it was when they tried to come off. But just to give your listeners hope, and so they don't feel trapped on those drugs in terms of their skin, there are ways to get through that withdrawal process and coming off of your skin. I have a blog post called how to treat and prevent, how to prevent and treat post pill acne. So there is hope and you just have to, to some degree kind of push through it, knowing that the worst time is usually about six months off the, those drugs, six months off the pill is the worst. And then it would start to get better anyway. So, mm-hmm. And for those people but, who yeah. do want to come off the pill, or they haven't actually gone on the pill, but they're dealing with hormone symptoms, what are some alternatives in terms of contraception? Yeah. Well, I have a blog post called the five best types of natural birth control. So what I list there is number one, fertility, a fertility awareness method, which has lots of different 
types now. So that's based on the idea that the truth that we are fertile for only six days per cycle. Men are fertile every day. We're fertile only six days. So it's about identifying when those days are, knowing when they are, and then abstaining or using barrier methods on those days. And then on the other days, bonus, you get to just have sex and not worry about it, which is the beauty of that method. So there's ways to learn that yourself. There's way, there are a few device, like algorithms and devices and apps that are now certified for that purpose. Not just any old app will do that, but there's a, a couple. There's a device called Daisy, which I quite like. So they can find, your listeners can find that on my blog post. And also then condoms which I am a fan of condoms. I don't know why they've fallen so far out of favor. Mm -hmm. They're quite good. And there's some new ones that are more comfortable, that fit better, that are less likely to break. The key is to get one that fits. Seems kind of obvious. We get clothes (laughs) that fit. Why would we choose a condom that's not the right size? So it's actually about your partner has to measure his erect penis and figure out what he needs. And it's going to be so much more comfortable for him and so Mm -hmm. much safer in terms of not falling off, not breaking. And then I talk about the copper IED or the copper coil in that blog post. I talk about a new diaphragm that's out there. And I think, I can't remember in that blog post, but in my book, certainly I do talk about withdrawal. It's worth mentioning withdrawal is a thing. It's certainly, it is a method. You know, there's a few considerations about that, which I talk about in the book, namely that you just really need to know the real thing is to not have sex twice not have sex twice in a row without doing like without the man has to mm-hmm. wash his penis and pee and just make sure there's no residual uh, sperm around. But, and there's a couple other considerations, but it's in a way it's funny because the withdrawal actually its effectiveness is as good as some of the, some of the barrier methods. So it deserves to come into the conversation and people are doing it anyway. So I think if, mm-hmm. <laughs> we might as well have a conversation yeah, about it. Talk about and it. <laughs> I, yeah. If you're doing that as your method, you also, it's really helpful to know when your fertile days are. And just as mm-hmm. a quick thing for listeners, when you see that raw egg white, slippery, copious type of mucus, vaginal mucus, uh, fertile mucus, you know you're super fertile that day that would be a day to take real care yeah. <laughs> with what you're doing <laughs> absolutely and other people yeah. who don't experience the um egg white cervical mucus when it comes to ovulation or is that yeah. a definite sign well it is there yeah. it should be there if they're not seeing it it's maybe because they're just not producing so much that it becomes a big blob on the toilet paper mm-hmm. but they can still learn to look for it um, learn to measure that requires inserting the finger and looking for it. Yeah. Testing that. And the, all at any educational manual and fertility awareness method will talk about that. And just to be clear for your listeners, you, you won't have seen fertile mucus on the pill it, or any type of hormonal birth control because it dries that up. So it'll only be a new thing that you start to see when you're cycling on your own. Yeah, and I've even had people ask me, they thought it was like um, a yeast infection or yeah. some sort of infection because they'd never noticed that before. But I'm like, it's yeah. completely natural. It's a good sign. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I've had the same conversation. Yeah. If you've never, and it is, it can be quite copious. It can be a really big, mm. weird looking blob. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. If you have never seen that before because you've been on the pill, you'd be thinking, what on earth? <laughs> oh my God. What is this? <laughs> yeah. 
and if someone's not seen that and maybe they're tracking with like a daisy or just the uh, temperature charting yeah and they're not ovulating what are some like barriers to ovulation yeah obstacles to ovulation yeah yeah i know there's a lot <laughs> there are so yeah. in the book i talk about it is worth seeing the doctor and having the doctor do some blood tests and try to rule that out. Although to be fair, it can be kind of a frustrating conversation with the doctor. So if you go to the doctor, I, I give a patient story in my book and you say, oh, I don't think I'm ovulating. You know, I'm having these bleeds, but I don't think I'm actually ovulating. Some of the doctors will say, so <laughs> like they don't, they don't value it. They don't really seem to care. Yeah. They're just like, oh, well, if you want, I don't know, go on the pill. Like they, yeah. they just kind of like, but you have to stay firm and say, well, I'd like to ovulate. You know, I, I feel like that's important. I would like to understand why I'm ovulating. Or <laughs> oh, they'll so, say that you must be ovulating because you have a period. That's no. the other, yeah, that's their other yeah. argument, which isn't true. Which isn't true, <laughs> no. Although usually if you're having a very regular cycle, yeah. you're probably ovulating. Chances are. But if, if you're having, say, a a bleed only every two or three months, you're probably not ovulating. Though so you could be, but you're probably not. And the most likely explanation for having a very irregular cycle that comes every two to three months, there's different reasons that need to be discussed, but a likely outcome of the testing is PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is, as I said at the beginning, becoming more common. The doctor needs to assess that with measuring male hormones or testosterone, hopefully assessing for something called insulin resistance. There's another test which is extremely helpful called luteinizing hormone or LH. I've blogged about that a couple of times for making that diagnosis. And then, you know, then the next step is to actually read my book and go through the different types of PCOS and try to work out what's driving that. Because again, once again, the doctor's solution will probably be the pill which is actually a bit crazy because if you think about it, PCOS is a problem with ovulating. So PCOS is not being able to ovulate regularly. And the current conventional treatment is to give a drug that suppresses ovulation. So <laughs> makes sense. it actually really makes, no, it makes zero sense at all. So that's it. That's something to think about. The other reason for lack of ovulation or no periods at all would be more a state of just nothing happening, like just total silence, no estrogen signs, no fertile mucus, no periods, no nothing. But again, different reasons for that that do need to be assessed. But at the end of the day, that is often something called hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is really just lack of periods due to not eating enough or not eating enough carbohydrate. And it's mm -hmm. becoming more and more common with and clean eating and dieting and it's something that I see a lot more than I used to it can be sometimes what can happen is you coming off the pill it can be normal to not see a period for a few months but then if you're not eating enough that can just extend into not seeing a period for a couple of years which is not good for your health so yeah, it's about trying to identify if it's hypothalamic amenorrhea. A really typical feature of hypothalamic amenorrhea, or HA, it's called for short, is low luteinizing hormone, or LH. Mm -hmm. That out there. Yes. Yeah. A good, pretty clear marker. Low LH compared to FSH. Definitely. And the PCOS and HA can share a lot of 
physical yes. similarities so like the yeah. acne on the ultrasound there could be the cystic ovaries yeah yeah so yeah, yeah it's commonly misdiagnosed um do you yeah. think that someone can have both pcos and ha yeah to some extent you can certainly well you can have how to say it you can have a pcos tendency or you can have a tendency to maybe high no hormones but then swing into a state of undereating and losing your period mm. from undereating. So in that case, that becomes HA first and foremost. But then there can be the problem that once your periods come back, they're of the irregular PCOS type. So there, yeah, the, the solution is to eat enough first, eat enough, and then deal with the PCOS tendency, but not by restricting calories or restricting carbohydrate, but by doing avoiding sugar and doing some of the other things. Yeah, that can happen with people who are, like you say, doing a low-carb diet because they believe they have the insulin resistance um, causing the PCOS, but there are other driving factors of PCOS. Would you kind of yeah. go over what they are? Yeah, so the first step, if, you, if you're pretty certain that you do have PCOS, not just based on an ultrasound, because as you said, the polycystic, the polycystic ovaries on ultrasound means almost nothing actually. It's, it's close to meaning nothing as it can be. So true PCOS diagnosis needs to be some evidence of male hormones, either on blood test or some significant degree of facial hair or body hair, plus irregular ovulation, plus potentially the highish LH compared to FSH. Then if that's definitely what's happening, then the next step is to test for insulin resistance. It's not always easy to get a test for insulin resistance because I don't know why the doctors tend to just do blood glucose, which is not a test. You can have normal glucose and still have insulin resistance. So the test is actually testing for insulin, the hormone insulin, either as a fasting insulin or preferably in a, what I do with my patients is a test a what's called a glucose tolerance test, but measuring insulin as well at the fasting and the one and two hour mark. And then, and the other sign of insulin resistance that's pretty reliable is the apple-shaped weight gain. So the abdominal, the kind of muffin top apple-shaped, and that's measuring the waist at the belly button. And if in women, if that's more than about 85 centimeters, that's, yeah, pretty good sign that it is insulin resistance. And then... In which case, the treatment, as I discuss in my book, I'll just say quickly, the number one thing is to quit sugar. You don't have to quit all carbs necessarily, but you really need to get off like concentrated dessert type, sugar dessert type foods. So desserts, soft drinks, fruit juice, natural desserts, including date balls and all the sweet stuff. I say to my patients, if it, if it tastes like dessert, <laughs> it's sugar. Like yeah. you don't have to go down the path of, oh, I can't have whole fruit. I can't yeah. have certain vegetables. It doesn't have to be look like that. But like, it's like you're asking yourself the honest question, is this dessert? Mm -hmm. <laughs> then that's too much sugar. <laughs> and let's um, talk a bit more about the impacts of carbohydrates on fertility in general. So I've heard you mention the 150 grams as um, being yeah. like a sweet spot for ovulation. Would that be for the average woman? And does that still apply to someone with PCOS? Okay, so someone with strong insulin resistance, let's just say that. Like I, I had a patient a couple of days ago who, she was definitely like pre-diabetic, really quite, quite strong insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. she, in her case, she's, she's going to benefit from a, quite a low carbohydrate. She's doing keto for a little while, actually. 
So that would be appropriate in that situation. She doesn't have to do it forever, but until she reduces her insulin resistance. So that's, that's a more in the more that end of the spectrum. For someone with milder insulin resistance, they don't really have to worry about reducing starches. They have to do what I just said by cutting sugar and reducing, getting rid of desserts, like completely for a little while, at least for a little while. None of us really need desserts, although for some of us, desserts are okay to have sometimes. So that's the mild insulin resistance. For someone who does not have insulin resistance or who is hypothalamic amenorrhea or HA or who has, who has low fasting insulin and a low LH, that's under eating. That, for someone in that situation, yeah, you probably need minimum 150 or 200 grams of carbohydrates per day, preferably in the form of starchy, like starchy vegetables. I'd say rice and potatoes is kind of my go-to a couple times a day, probably to reach that 200 grams. And you need to commit to that for four or five months to see an ovulation or to see a period potentially. And why is that and important for, for um, female hormones in particular, the eating enough and particularly carbohydrates? Why is that important for females? Because we hear all like males doing well on keto and really low carb, but it yeah. really doesn't work well for women, does it? No. And you know what? A lot of those men giving that advice, I'll just say to be blunt, <laughs> cause it's like before eight o'clock in the morning here for me. So I'm yeah. feeling, <laughs> feeling feisty. Yeah. They're not, I'll give you, they have no idea about periods. They're not thinking about ovulation. They have no, it honestly never crosses their mind. It's not even on their radar as something that could matter for humans. So they're speaking entirely from their own experience. There's been almost no research done on women. It's kind yeah. of like nutrition science forgot mm -hmm. to study with women. So, which is very concerning. Um, in answer to your question, Oh yeah, like so. What was the question about why women? Yeah. Why? Yes. Yeah. Why yeah. women need? Well, it's to do with the hypothalamus, that part of our brain. That's why it's called hypothalamic amenorrhea or hypothalamus-induced lack of periods. The the hypothalamus is the boss in terms of hormones. It's monitoring the situation in terms of stress. In terms of is there enough food coming in? It specifically senses glucose and insulin. It seems to be specifically watching for, is there enough starch coming in? And that amount, the amount that it considers enough is gonna vary woman to woman. So some women, yes, with a certain ancestry, maybe who were adapted to famine, or some women can ovulate with quite a low level of carbohydrate coming in, which is great for them but some women cannot. So there's no way to know, like some way to measure what your th carbohydrate threshold might be. It's called a ovarian set point, but there's, if you basically, if you lose your period to a low carb diet, that was too low carb for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. it's just trial and error. Yeah, it's somewhat trial yeah. and error, but I think it's about being alert to that. You, you can try lowish carb if it's feeling okay, but watch your period. And, just to say again, watch your period, your real period, not your pill bleeds. Because being on the pill and having those drug-induced bleeds means nothing and can mask this problem. So we're talking about ovulation, real cycles. And if you lose those, 
your body is telling you that's that's not good enough there's something about your diet that i don't like yeah your period is your fifth vital sign yes it's a vital <laughs> sign yeah and it's what i call the monthly report card yes. i feel sorry for men that they don't have it it's such a handy barometer <laughs> health and i've been saying for a while that if men had ovulation and cycles they would never stop talking about it like they'd be tracking it you know all the, the kind <laughs> yeah. biohack yeah <laughs> yeah there'd be like some kind of special comparing charts thermometer yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah. And on the diet subject um what are your thoughts on a vegan diet for female hormone health i've observed that it's a problem it's slow slow depletion so short term can feel quite good going vegan definitely because of removing cow's dairy mainly because cow's dairy can be quite a problem for skin and period pain and heavy periods so not unusual to feel actually quite a bit lighter quite a bit fantastic in the first few months especially coming like from coming off dairy and thinking this is great this is my new life now and then six months 12 months in your body is potentially telling the story of the deficiencies that it's feeling particularly the deficiencies that concern me most with a vegan diet is zinc preformed vitamin a iodine taurine an amino acid called taurine which is actually a neurotransmitter which our brain needs to be happy and healthy which you can only get from animal products um iron Iron. Well, iron, yeah. Iron and protein. Yeah. Although most, and, B, and B12, obviously, yeah. but I mean, those ones, most women are kind of, yeah, they're thinking about those, but the hidden ones are zinc, iodine, mm. taurine, coenzyme Q10, choline, yeah. choline, important yeah. for mental health. So I, my, I just, all I can tell you is when a patient says to me that she's vegan, my heart sinks because then I am thinking, I'm sitting there with her, I'm thinking, we have this hope, this plan that you're, whatever symptoms you're experiencing, usually it's low mood, low energy. We're hoping this is lack of periods sometimes or irregular periods. We're hoping this is going to get better. And if they, if they don't eat animal products, I have to lower my expectations. I say to her, you know, you could, if you're going to keep doing that, we're going to have to lower our expectations about how healthy you can be. That's my observation. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, I know it's yeah. controversial, but we're not like, because I'm a biologist first and foremost yeah. in my training. We, the, the human body has biological parameters of what it needs. We're an omnivore. It, you can't change that. I think it's actually wishful thinking to think you could somehow decide what the body needs and what it doesn't need. It needs what it needs. And mm -hmm. I, I always say it sounds absolutely perfect on paper that we can all live in harmony we don't have to kill anything but it's just not realistic no, we're just I'm designed old. yeah we're just designed yeah. to consume animals as humans yeah i agree we are, unfortunately and also killing plants is no small thing mm, i just read exactly. this, this is a separate thing but i read this book called the hidden life of trees which i seriously love because i'm a biologist and a bit of a geek anyway <laughs> he, he makes the argument that plants particularly tree well tre i know we don't eat many trees but you know plants have a very interesting thing going on. They've got a type of intelligence. They are living creatures, um, sentient to some degree, I would almost say, mm -hmm. which is pretty interesting. So, I mean, yes, we eat other creatures. It's, um, it's 
painful reality. And also the big picture eating a lot of grains, like if you're heavy on the, as vegans can be eating a lot of grain crops, those monoculture crops, they're actually really bad for biological diversity because unlike, you know, growing animals in a permaculture setting, you get lots of bugs and other small creatures and everybody kind of live, living in an ecosystem as opposed to a, just a massive monoculture crop. Now, just to, one last thing about that. I mean, to be fair, if you're eating factory farmed meat that's being fed monoculture crops, then no, that's, mm -hmm. you know, you're not, that's not a good thing. Either. So I know it's hard. I know that non-factory farmed meat is more expensive, but I guess my approach as an individual is to, it's easier where I live in New Zealand where most of our meat is grass-fed. But yes, it's about trying to choose animal products that are grown in a way that supports ecology. Mm -hmm. And I've been getting into the work of Diana Rogers, is it, recently? Yeah. She, yeah, really interesting and I definitely support her work. So everyone should yeah. go and check that out. Um, right. Yeah. If they, they want to know more. Yeah, yeah I'll put the link in yeah. the show notes. Yeah. So I want to touch on a few more specific subjects before we wrap up. The okay. first one being hirsutism. So yeah. what are the main causes and what are your top treatments recommendations? Yeah, so facial hair. Yeah. Not an easy symptom. Mm -hmm. I'll say from the outset, it is a frustrating symptom. It usually is caused by PCOS, which is the hormonal condition we've been talking about from the ex, um, high male hormones of that condition. Can be caused by other types of high male hormone problems. So the doctor needs to rule out something called adrenal hyperplasia, another reason. Hyperlactin can cause uh, facial hair, hirsutism. And so the, the plan is first to try to treat the underlying like I'm sorry, the underlying condition. Mm -hmm. If it's PCOS, treat that. And over time, testosterone production will reduce and the, the symptom will lessen. Something to keep in mind is the hormones we make from ovulation, the hormones, the, the female hormones we make with a normal natural menstrual cycle, estrogen and progesterone, both have a beneficial effect on hirsutism. So they both have an anti-androgen or an anti-testosterone effect, if you will. So that's one goal is to get ovulatory cycles happening so that you can, your own hormones can lessen it. Then I have a blog post called the seven best natural anti-androgens talks about um, zinc is one of my favorite ones talks about a, a supplement called dim which seems quite useful mm -hmm. there's a few other, obviously I list a few other things there yeah. and it's just about being patient I think my with my own patients I try to the expectation is over time it's going to lessen it's going to light like become finer it's probably not going to go away entirely it's really hard to reverse that entirely even the drugs can't reverse it completely depending on how bad it is so but it's most women are happy with the combination of okay it's going to become finer it's going to grow less quickly and then you can that helps you to be able to keep up with it with some waxing or some other hair removal techniques so that's mm -hmm. i guess that's my approach yeah. yeah and you mentioned congenital adrenal hyperplasia can you just yeah. give a brief overview of what that is because there can be quite a lot of similarities between pcos so yeah. how does someone know if they've got that or pcos yeah it's a couple of blood tests the doctor it's a genetic condition so there's a first there's a blood test called 17 hydroxyprogesterone which would be kind of a screening blood test and then i think the next step is the doctor would do the genetic test 
and um, yeah, it's it's just a genetic tendency to overproduction of male hormones from the adrenal glands. And the treatment, well, one of the conventional treatments is actually low dose natural hydrocortisone, which is really interesting. But that, I mean, that would be for the endocrinologist to decide about that, what to do. And just to, as a comment, there, so a lot of piece, a lot of times uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia is misdiagnosed as PCOS, which is a problem. I just had someone, a specialist mentioning that. She was saying actually how relatively reasonably common adrenal hyperplasia is, and it really does need to be tested for. But the other tricky part of the story is even if you don't have the genetic adrenal hyperplasia, there is a type of, well, it's classified as a type of PCOS, but it's called adrenal PCOS, where the picture is, you put under the PCOS diagnostic umbrella, but really it's a totally different situation where your main source of male hormones are the adrenal glands. And from a natural health perspective, that requires a different approach. That's not about reversing insulin resistance to reverse the condition. It's about, yeah, taking steps to try to reduce those, the adrenal, to, to alter adrenal function, which I talk about in my book. Mm-hmm. One of your recommended herbal combinations is peony and licorice yeah uh, i have one question about that with yeah. the um it is suitable for the adrenal type if i'm correct yes would the licorice not stimulate and uh, stimulate cortisol more because it's often used for adrenal formulas you know to keep cortisol yeah. in the system longer so would that not exacerbate the adrenal pcos type no the opposite actually because right. with adrenal pcos it's it's more dhea more androgens less mm. cortisol so and that's why the conventional treatment is to give cortisol basically give hydrocortisone and actually often with the adrenal type i will just give licorice on its own without the peony keeping in mind your listeners need to know licorice is a tricky herb to use it raises blood pressure mm-hmm. yeah long-term use is going to alter cortisol so you want to think that through and maybe get advice before taking that. Basically what I say in the book is if you're going to try the peony and licorice, at least watch your blood pressure. Don't take it every day and don't take it for more than about nine months in a row. And if, if your blood pressure goes up and stop it, that, that's the idea. Yeah. yeah. Work with a practitioner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, just to wrap up, I wanted to ask just a few questions about you personally, how you stay okay. hormonally healthy. Uh, okay. The first one is what's your go-to breakfast? Protein. I'm a dinner mm. for I'm a dinner for breakfast yeah. kind of person. I've been that for a while. Like after this, it's very early here. I've slipped this interview in before breakfast, which is usually I'm a good breakfast eater, but mm-hmm. I'm going to eat breakfast after this. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna heat up the chicken and rice that we had last night. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. yeah. I always have just meat, vegetables, fish, whatever. Yeah. People think it's weird, yeah. but works for me. Why, why eat like the whole idea of breakfast food is like it has to be cereal exactly. or who who made up that law? Like it's <laughs> dessert for breakfast, more like yeah, muffins and yeah, oh, that's a problem. That's yeah. a big problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially for PCOS. Yes. The yeah. second question is: If there was one herb, nutrient, or supplement that you just could not live without, what would it be? Magnesium. Hmm. Yeah, magnesium. Classic. It, it's good for mood. It's good for PMS. It's good for PCOS. Yeah, it's I, someone did a review of my book on Amazon. I always share the story, which I just loved. She was just the way she wrote it was just so clever and funny. She was just like, "It's a good book." She's like, "Basically, take magnesium." Need, yeah, <laughs> I'm <laughs> saying there's a few other there's a few other points in there too. So. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, if you take any, anything away from that book, take my keys. Yeah, take yeah. my <laughs> The third question is, what's something that you've been into recently? So it could be health related, something that you're researching or just in your personal life. Is there something that you love in? Yeah, something that, well, I'm thinking, I'll just, what's popping into mind, I'm thinking a lot more about perimenopause and menopause and that transition because that's where I am personally. Mm -hmm. Cool. And I'm thinking about my next book, maybe being about oh, that. And good. it's a really important thing. And, and just to say for your listeners, if they're thinking, oh, that doesn't apply to me, the transition to menopause starts, can start as early as your late 30s. So it's, it's something every woman actually does need to be thinking about because it's not that far away, unfortunately, for yeah. most of us. <laughs> Um, and have you got any key takeaways from your research that you want to share? Yeah, well, the main thing for perimenopause is that we lose progesterone first, right? We lose, eventually lose estrogen, but that's way down the track. We lose progesterone and that can be quite destabilizing for the nervous system, for the adrenal system. So it's about thinking about progesterone, how to support that. Maybe sometimes taking progesterone, natural progesterone as a first line treatment before doing anything else because I'll just share with you like a lot of women a lot of my patients will have the story they went through their 20s and 30s and into late 30s it's like good I'm natural I'm doing everything natural I'm not taking the pill I'm, I'm doing well and then the symptoms of the mood symptoms and kind of sleep and heavy periods of perimenopause in their 40s hit and then they're like oh my god I, I'll just take the pill like I really don't know what else to do and you get women taking the pill for the first time oh. in their 40s, and that's not that's not a good no, hope that doesn't happen to me. No, I'm <laughs> scared right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and final question is, where can people find more about you online and where can they get your book? Yep. So my book is Period to Pair Manual. It's on Amazon, most, many bookshops, a lot of most of the online bookshops and iTunes and all the usual. And my blog is larabryden.com. And all my social media is at Laura Bryden. I just kept it really simple. It's Good. just my name. <laughs> it's always yeah. easy. And if yeah. anyone can't remember that, then I'll pop it in the show notes. So yeah. Just click a link and they'll find yeah. you there. So I want to thank you so much for your time, yeah. Laura. This has been really good. I'd love to have you back on in the future. We could discuss some yeah. more subjects um, that we've yeah. not covered today. There's just so much that we could. I could keep you here for three hours, but I know that you're That's really great. busy and I appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Thanks so much. It was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next step to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.